All right, church, let's turn to the Word of God. And again, if you're a guest, uh, we tend to take the next 45 minutes or so to preach through a scripture, what we call expository preaching. And we've been preaching through the Gospels for four weeks. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are the accounts of Jesus who is the Gospel. They're, They're the accounts of Jesus' life, actually his, his, his birth, his miraculous incarnation, God becoming man, his birth, his life that was lived perfectly, his death on a cross, which we celebrated on Good Friday just a couple of weeks ago, week and a half or so ago, his resurrection from the dead, which we celebrated last Sunday, and Corey is right, Jesus is still raised from the dead, even though it's not Easter anymore, we celebrate it every day, every Sunday. And now today we come to the end of one of the Gospels. We come to the last chapter of the Gospel of Luke. So that's going to be the text this morning. Luke chapter 24 and the last 10 verses of this chapter. The title of the message is Christ's Ascension. Because now in this little mini-series on the Gospel, remember Jesus is the Gospel, we've come to the final act of Jesus' life on earth. His ascension into heaven. And so I had two questions for you as you're turning to Luke chapter 24, verses 44 to 53. The title of the message is Christ's Ascension. I have two questions for you as you turn to that text. Number one, do you know what occurred at Christ's Ascension? And number two, is it significant in your life? Do you know what occurred at Christ's Ascension and is it significant in your life. You see, Christ's ascension, as I mentioned, is the final element of the gospel. If Jesus Christ is the gospel, then his ascension is the final element. The gospel doesn't end with the resurrection. Resurrection is very important. It, it's completed in the ascension. And if that's something new to you, then I'm glad you're here listening to this message. Because the The ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ is very, very important. It completes all of the redemptive work of Christ from his birth to his life to his death to his resurrection. It's incomplete without the ascension. So we're going to take a look at what does that mean? What did the ascension accomplish? But more importantly, what is its significance for you and for me? So let's read the historical narrative of Christ's ascension. You ready? Luke chapter 24. If you don't have a Bible, please look on with someone else. We also have some Bibles on this table right back here. That's a gift from us to you if you don't own a Bible. Luke 24, 44 to 53. Last 10 verses of the Gospel of Luke. Then he, Jesus Christ, said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Verse 50. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. 
And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. The last few verses here tell us that the, the, the ascension of Jesus Christ produced in his disciples worship of him and joy. What does it produce in you? What does the ascension, this doctrine of the ascension, the reality of the ascension, what does it produce in you? And maybe more importantly, are you one of Christ's disciples? Now, if you are one of Christ's disciples, then I want to pray right now for God the Holy Spirit to reveal to you, to reveal to us afresh the facts of the ascension. You might have forgotten the facts. You may never have studied the facts. It's a little strange to you. Someone was lifted up into the clouds. Levitation. What's going on here? I hope that at the end of the sermon, you have fixed in your mind what's going on here. But more importantly, I pray that the significance of the ascension for you, dear disciple of Jesus Christ, would hit home to you this morning and you would worship him. That would be the fruit of this sermon. You would worship him more. You would have more joy, more confidence in him. But if you are not a disciple of Jesus Christ this morning, remember that was the second question. Are you a disciple? First question, what does the ascension produce in your life? Second question, are you a disciple? If you're not a disciple, first of all, I want to say thank you for being here. That's very humble of you. I think you're wise to to want to hear about this. But I want to pray for you in just a moment as well. I want to pray that God the Holy Spirit would open your eyes and your heart to the gospel. Open your eyes and your heart to Jesus Christ. Not just his ascension, which is going to be the subject of today's sermon, but that he would open your eyes and heart to Christ's miraculous birth, his incarnation, God became man, to his perfect life lived for you, to his sacrificial death that he died on the cross for you, to the fact that he rose from the dead and he lives today, and yes, to the truths of the ascension that you, my friend, might worship God this morning and have joy, true joy in your heart. Let's pray. Lord, give us your grace this morning, and I pray that you would anoint me, that is to say that you would empower me, you would equip me, you would, you would help me to preach, and that you would help my friends to hear, that I would preach in faith what you want preached, your word, And that they would hear, we would hear in faith and apply your word. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, before examining the facts of Christ's ascension and their significance for us, let me set the context for you. And as I set the context for you, let me share with you my purpose in preaching this message. And I believe God's purpose in giving us this text. And here it is, that we would understand what the scriptures say about the ascension, about Jesus Christ, and that this understanding, friends, would produce in us true worship of Christ like these disciples did, and true joy, a joy that is beyond the the circumstances of this world. Now, first we must remember something, that the Jesus Christ, who is speaking to the disciples here in verses 44 to 53, is the resurrected Lord. I mean, he's the crucified Lord. 
He had been crucified just a few days earlier. He's now the resurrected Lord. And we see in verses 44 and 45 that he comes to the disciples, the crucified, resurrected Lord Jesus. And what does he do? He speaks to them about what the scriptures are teaching about him. Do you see that? Look at verse 44. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, that's the first five books of the Bible. The first five books of the Bible are called the Pentateuch. It's called the law of Moses. And the prophets, the prophets make up the bulk, really the bulk of the Old Testament. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel. These all spoke about Jesus Christ because he's the Messiah. He's the Christ. And the Psalms, the Psalms, the beautiful Davidic Psalms, the Messianic Psalms. We're going to read one this morning. So he opened up the Bible because back then they didn't have the New Testament, hadn't been written yet. They had the Old Testament. And he opened up and he taught them out of the Old Testament about himself. In verse 45, he says, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Oh, friends, listen, if you're here for the first time, I pray that God open your mind to understand the scriptures. Nothing is more important. Not that text you're you're texting right now. Not that thing you're thinking about. Not even the Miami Heat playoffs. Friend, nothing is more important than the Word of God and to have your mind opened up to understand it and its significance in your life. That's my prayer for you. Maybe for the first time ever. Maybe as a Christian for many, many, many years. That we might worship Jesus. That we might do it with great joy. And now look how Jesus summarizes the entire teaching about Him. He does it in one sentence. I love this. Verse 46. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Here Jesus gives the summation of the gospel. He is to suffer. We know that that means while he lived here on earth, he suffered. And then he suffered on the cross a violent death and the wrath of God. And then on the third day, he should rise from the dead. Here is the gospel. Here he summarizes the gospel. Then he commissions them. This is something that all the gospels have. The commissioning. He says to his disciples, now, well, let me read it to you. Verse 47. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name, in Jesus' name, to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Now here's the commission, verse 48. You are witnesses of these things. You are witnesses of these things. He says, listen, this is now the truth about me. I'm the Christ, and now I'm giving you a commission. You now have to go and go preach me. Preach repentance, which means turning from your thoughts about God to God's thoughts about God. It's tough for proud people to do that. And forgiveness of sins. No longer am I going to be made right with God based on my performance, based on the law, based on what I can do, but based on what Christ has done. He will raise from the dead for my justification, for the forgiveness of my sins. Go preach that. And then verse 49. I'm still on the context. And then verse 49. See, verse 49, Jesus is going to tell them that you need something to be able to do all of that. Here's what you need. Verse 49. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city 
until you are clothed with power from on high. So he said, you're going to need something to be my witnesses and to preach or proclaim repentance. Because for people to change their minds, there's going to be a power bigger than you that you need. And forgiveness of sins. For people to see that their sins are forgiven, not through the law, but through my life, death, and resurrection. Then you're going to need something and it's power. It's power. He calls it the promise of the Father. Now, later in the New Testament, we know what that promise is. That promise is the Holy Spirit. That promise is the Holy Spirit. But before we get there, because that's one of the facts of the ascension, that's one of the things that the ascension brings to us, the Holy Spirit. But before we get to that, remember, we're building the context. Verse 50, he now brings them out to Bethany. Bethany's on the east side of Jerusalem, maybe less than a mile away from Jerusalem. The Mount of Olives, and then Bethany is just on the east side of the Mount of Olives. So it's right outside the eastern side of Jerusalem. You see in verse 50. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. I love that. He blessed them. He wasn't angry at them. He blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and we're continuing the temple, blessing God. All right, so let me ask you this one more question, and I'll be done with the questions. Was the ascension a departure, or was it an arrival? Well, it's both. I mean, it's kind of like when you take a flight. Okay, we have a dear friend here with us, Jill Farmer. Her husband, Andy, is a pastor in our church in Philadelphia, when, yesterday, her flight was both a departure and she was hoping there'd be an arrival. Not a good news if you depart on a flight but never arrive. It's not good. Here's the thing about this morning's message. It's not so much about his departure. Oh, sure, his departure was amazing. I mean, if you and I were sitting there and Jesus were speaking to us and he was saying, wait till you get this power from on high. And then he takes us out to this hillside and then he blesses us. We kind of like the blessing and then all of a sudden, that would be pretty amazing. We'd want to know all about that, wouldn't we? But it's interesting. Scripture doesn't spend a whole lot, lot of time talking about that. It doesn't spend time talking about his departure. You know what it spends time talking about? His arrival. What's more important is what happened when Jesus arrived at his final destination. That is the subject of this sermon. What happened at Jesus' arrival? And did what happened at Jesus' arrival have any significance for them? And does it have any significance for you and for me? So, let's look at the facts, friends. Point number one. What occurred at Christ's ascension? Or what happened at his arrival? Well, number one, as someone said to me this morning, this first point was written by Captain Obvious. Christ ascended to a place. Christ ascended to a place. Well, he sure did, Al. Very good. It says right here in verse 50. One, and when he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Now, wait a second, old Captain Obvious. Um, So heaven's a place? It's not just a state of mind. Uh, so, so, are you saying heaven's for real? Like, where did he physically go? Because, listen, you can't argue with this. Well, you can, but you'd be wrong. You can't argue with this. A, a physical flesh and bones man ascended from them 
and went somewhere. If you read the first part of chapter 24, verses 36 to 43, Jesus shows up to them and they freak out and think that he's a ghost. And he goes, I'm not a ghost. And he says, here, touch my hands, touch my side. He goes, anybody have any food? And they said, sure, we have some fish. And they gave him broiled fish and he ate it. So what, what you, by logical inference, you've got to understand here is this text tells us that he ascended into a place. Why is that so important now? Because the implication is heaven is real. And I don't need some near-death experience to tell me that, nor a book about it, nor a movie about it. Right here is enough for me. And the other implication is this. If a real flesh and bone man who rose from the dead, who had a resurrected body, ascended and Jesus ascended to a place, the other implication is he promises us that same place. Look at the text here on the screen. John 14, 1 to 3. Jesus saying to his disciples prior to his death and resurrection and ascension, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I, not, would I have not told you? Would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to my, myself. And where I am, there you shall be also. Here's the implication, Christian. This life's not the final place. Our... Bodies will be resurrected. Jesus is the assurance of that. And our flesh and bones resurrected bodies. I'm not sure what they're going to look like. I'm not sure what that's going to all be about. But I know it's going to happen because Jesus is the first one. And he went to some place. And so will we. So what's the implication, Christian? Let not your hearts be troubled. What's the implication, not Christian? Let your heart be troubled. Because you have no assurance of going to that place apart from Christ. I say that with love. As your heart's troubled, then ask the Lord to help you. He would show you what he did for you. Point two. Another fact of the resurrection. And by the way, what I'm going to be doing this morning is much like what Jesus did that morning. I am not... Jesus, (laughs) I have nowhere near his authority or power, but he did commission me to preach the gospel, as he says right here. So I'm just doing what he did. Jesus took the disciples through a little tour of the Bible that spoke about his life, death, resurrection, and I'm sure ascension. And that's all I'm doing this morning. And you know what my prayer is? That God would open your hearts. Okay? All right, so point two. Second fact about the ascension, Christ received glory and honor. Now, let me explain something to you. When Jesus came to earth, the Bible teaches us that he voluntarily left the glory that he had with the Father eternally. The Father, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit have existed eternally, always together, sharing in glory. At the incarnation, God the Son then was incarnate. God became man. And at that point, he left that glory with the Father. He was born into a decidedly unglorious world. He was a baby. They had to change his diapers. That's part of his suffering, by the way. He grew up in a difficult time, a poor man. 
But here's what the Bible says. That part of the plan was when Jesus came and did this, this, this mission, that he voluntarily, willingly did this mission that involved lots of non-glory, lots of suffering, lots of, lots of heartache. In fact, it will ultimately cost him his life and the very wrath of God to be poured on him. What sustained him was this. He was going to go back to glory. And look at John 17, 5. Many passages in John about this. This is one of them. Jesus saying, and now, Father, he's speaking to his Father. Jesus is speaking in his high priestly prayer. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And so now skipping forward to Philippians 2.9, let me set the context for Philippians 2.9. In Philippians 2.9, this is a letter that the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Philippi. The previous verses tell us that Jesus obeyed the Father all the way to dying on the cross, a humiliating death. And then picking up in verse 9, because he did that, therefore, God has highly exalted him. We sang about that this morning. Name above all names. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name. We're going to go back to that song at the end of this sermon. And I hope that this sermon and this truth would produce a new worship of Jesus. Real worship. Not just an emotional experience. Don't need a bunch of drums and a bunch of loud music to do it. Not bad to have it. I personally like that stuff. But you don't need it. In fact, sometimes that hinders you from really thinking about the words of what we are doing. We're worshiping the one who was humiliated for us. But then restored back to glory. What's the significance? Jesus promises to share that glory with us. Continuing on in his high priestly prayer, in John 17, 22, and then verse 24, listen to what he said. He's still praying. Jesus is praying the high priestly prayer. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. That's us. That's the disciples who were like sitting there like, you know, drools coming out of their mouth as they're going up. He's going to give them glory. He's saying, listen, I'll be back. When I come back, it'll be as king and judge. But while I'm gone, I'm going to have the glory. I'm going to share this glory with you. And they're just like, I have no idea what you're saying, but this is really cool. Where are you going? (laughs) The glory that you have given me, I've given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. Verse 24, Father, I desire, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me. Oh, that's good. The one who's in heaven ruling and reigning desires for us to be with him and share his glory with us, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. There's that before the foundation of the world, eternal aspect of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, always existed together. What's the implication of this? What's the significance of this for us? Oh, friends, we all need glory. We were built for glory. Our problem is we look for glory in the wrong place. We look for it at, on pornographic websites. We look for it in large amounts of money in our bank account. We look for it in significance at work. We look for it in relationship after relationship with other people, uh, other friends or a romantic relationships. We look for glory in everything. Man, there's nothing wrong with this. All right, don't get mad at me here. But uh, we even look for glory in basketball teams, right? I watched the highlights of the heat last night. 
I, had, I wasn't able to be at home for the game. I enjoy that. But listen, every one of these glories, I mean, many of them are evil. Some of them aren't evil. They're, they're good things. But every one of these glories will fade. LeBron will one day no longer play for the heat. But the glory of Jesus Christ that he has with the Father will never fade. That's the glory we get. That's what the ascension teaches us. Isn't that good? Because most of us live pretty non-glorious lives. That's why we watch all the TV shows about glorious people. Because we want glory. Don't settle for a glory that's going to fade. There's only one glory. They won't ever fade. And he promises to share that with us. Is that a nice significance of the ascension? Number three. Third point about the ascension. Christ was enthroned at God's right hand. Christ was enthroned at God's right hand. The Old Testament is filled, and I'm sure Jesus went through every one of these texts. The Old Testament is filled with scriptures and filled with prophecies that Messiah Christ, that's Christ means Messiah. Christ would be seated at the right hand of the Father, would be seated at the right hand of God with full rule, with full authority. The most famous of those Old Testament passages, the one that is quoted the most in the New Testament, is Psalm 110, verse 1, on the screen. And Jesus, I'm sure, taught them from Psalm 110, verse 1, and said, I fulfill this. Right now, I'm going to go fulfill this. What? (laughs) Right now. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus fulfilled that at the ascension. He sat at the right hand of the Father. He took his rightful place. Theologically, that's called Christ's session. Court is in session. Christ is in session. He has ascended to the right hand of the Father. Man, this is good. This, is, this takes our eyes off of the non-glorious, mundane world we all live in. When we go to work at 4 or 5 or 6 in the morning, tomorrow morning, we're delivering packages for FedEx. We're washing uh, you know, vans for whatever Julian does to wash vans. Where's Julian? Is he not here? Oh, tell him that I asked about him. He's getting married next week, so I'm joking. Whatever, whatever non-glorious thing, you know, we're helping people that are really rich that own condos on the beach be happy, i.e. property managers. We're stuffing bottles, you know, with my grandfather's business and selling them all over the world, okay? I mean, decidedly non-glorious stuff, right? But all of a sudden, you just lift your eyes and you think, wow, that's my Lord and he's at the right hand of the Father. That's glory. I make no apologies for getting excited about it. I hope I'm more excited about this than when LeBron does a slam dunk and wins the game. Now, I'll be excited at both, okay? I love them both. But may I love, this won't ever fade. Hebrews 1.3, he, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Do you realize Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power? After making purification for sins, he, Jesus, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The ascension completes what Jesus did on the cross. Finish the play. Get to the rim and then score. Have a good defensive set and make sure they miss the the shot and then get the rebound. Don't give them an offensive rebound. The ascension is the the rebound. It's the slam dunk. At the ascension, everybody goes, yeah! 
That's the ascension. Jesus sat down in victory. He sat down in victory, church, signaling the completion of what he began. Ephesians 1, 20 to 21 says the following, speaking of God, that he, God, worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. That occurred at the, ascen- at the ascension. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. What's the significance Big significance, church. How so, Al? He's reigning. He's seated. I'm not Christ. I'm not in the Godhead. How is that significant for me? Because Scripture says that we are united with Christ, and if we're united with Christ, we're seated with Christ. I know it's amazing, but that's what Scripture says. Look at it. Ephesians 2, 5 and 6. Ephesians 2, 5 and 6. Even when we... We're dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So God made us alive together with Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the way. By grace you have been saved. Now listen, here we go. And raised us up with him, and amazing, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Well, where is Jesus seated? Now, I don't understand it fully either, okay? But it's really good stuff. Better to be seated there. Than other seats. This is the best seat in the house. And we didn't earn it. This is the glory that we forfeited at our sin, at Adam's sin. Jesus won it back and he says, come, I want to share it with you. Now, we're not Christ. We're not equal to Christ. We are going to rule. We're going to get to that in a moment. But it's under his rule. But it's just really good news to encourage me on a Monday morning. All these promises are based on Christ's exaltation and Christ's authority. And and the main implication of his exaltation and his authority, his ascension, is really found in verse 49. I alluded to that earlier. Look at verse 49 again. And behold, this is Jesus speaking, Luke 24, 49. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So number four, this is the key here. Here's the key fact about the ascension. Christ sent the Holy Spirit. From his position of authority, Christ sent the Holy Spirit. We we know that because Acts 2.33 on the screen tells us that. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, preaching the first sermon of the church on the day of Pentecost, filled with the Holy Spirit, the promised Holy Spirit, describes it this way. Peter speaking, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, he's speaking of Christ, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, Jesus, has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And I think it was over 3,000 people that were saved that day. I always get my numbers right, confused. Either three that day and five the other day, or five that day and three the other day. There's a lot of people. Jesus sent the promise of the Father We know from Galatians that the promise of the Father is the Holy Spirit. Galatians 3.14. To clothe us with power from on high. And here's the significance. I need power from on high. I need power from from on high to preach. Corey, I love what you said. You need power from on high to do the announcements this morning. Because what you were saying is life-changing. I mean, talk about repentance and forgiveness of sins. What you spoke about giving and getting really good at giving flies against everything our society teaches us. Our society says get really good, become really good at getting or taking or receiving. The Bible says become really good at giving. Ooh, I need the power of the Holy Spirit to say that on a Sunday morning. 
I need the power of the Holy Spirit. You need the power of the Holy Spirit tomorrow to go witness of Christ at your work, to raise your children. I love what Fernando says. I need help. I'm not Moses, and neither are you. We need help. (laughs) Acts 1.8, the very reason the Holy Spirit is given is to give us power. Jesus, by the way, Acts chapter 1 is a parallel account of Luke 24 because the same human author wrote them. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, and he wrote... Acts. Now, God inspired him, but Acts chapter 1 is a parallel account. Listen to what Luke writes in Acts 1.8. But you, Jesus speaking to his disciples, will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses, starting in Jerusalem, but it's no longer just a Jewish thing now, and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. It is the Holy Spirit church that takes the salvific works of Christ and applies them to our lives without the Holy Spirit, I can't receive what Jesus did. The Holy Spirit didn't die on the cross. Jesus did. But the Holy Spirit applies the redemptive work that Jesus earned on the cross to my heart. He makes my heart alive. And if your heart is dead this morning and you don't know Christ, I pray the Holy Spirit who is here right now would do that for you. The Holy Spirit gives us life. The Holy Spirit communicates to us the salvific blessings of Christ. Regeneration, to be made alive. Justification, to be made right with God. Sanctification, to grow to be more and more like Jesus. Ultimately, glorification. Illumination, to understand the scriptures. Daryl Bach, in his commentary on Luke, says the following. Because of the ascension of Jesus Christ, the benefits of the gospel are distributed to God's people through the promised Holy Spirit. That's a really good quote. Because of the ascension of Jesus Christ, the benefits of the gospel, the benefits of the gospel are distributed to us because of the ascension to God's people through the promised Holy Spirit. That's my burden today, that you would drink in the benefits of the gospel. Fifth fact is that Jesus intercedes for us. In John 14, 12 to 14, Jesus said the following. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do. That's amazing. Because I am going to the Father. There's, there's, a, there's one of the significance of the ascension. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Here's the significance of this fact of the ascension. We have a great high priest who's in the heavens interceding for us. Right now. He said he is. And he's sensitive to our suffering. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16 on the screen. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. That's his ascension. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, church, even when you're hurting this morning. And I'm so sorry you're hurting. God knows you're hurting. In a moment, you're going to see that he's a a, a gentle high priest who understands your pain. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Verse 16, let us then, let us then, here's the fruit, here's the fruit of the ascension. Let us then now worship him. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, no longer a throne of judgment for us because we're in Christ, but now a throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. God cares about your tears. God cares about your suffering. God cares about the pain. God cares about my mom's hip that shattered on 
on Friday. Poor mom, just in the hospital bed, this frail woman, almost 90. She's so tired of hospital beds. I'm tired of seeing her in the hospital bed. And my Aunt Hortensia, who's 96, who lives in a little apartment in Haile, has lived there for 35 years and refuses to go move in with her, her son, who lives in a mansion elsewhere. But she loves her, all her old Cuban friends in Hialeah, who have suffered over 40 years together, is calling me on the phone, can barely speak, saying, I'm worried about Teresa. ¿Cómo está Teresa? How's Teresa? How was the surgery? Hortensia, who's just suffering. God knows my mom's suffering, and God knows Ordensia's suffering, and God knows your suffering. Because Jesus became a man. And one day, point six, Jesus will return as king and judge. No time to go through that. this text. I believe God wants us to, to sing to him in just a moment. But one, one, of the, one of the implications, one of the significant things about Jesus returning as king and judge, here it is. And if you can find this, Matt, it's 1 Corinthians 15, 58. I think it's the last scripture. Here's the significance of that. You ready, church? Because he's returning as king and judge. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Church, in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Your labor is not in vain. Your labor is not in vain in the Lord because he's returning as king and judge. Let's pray. Worship team, please come up and join me. Father, in the midst of all the craziness of this world, in the midst of the decidedly lack of glory that most of us live in every day, in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of enemies like we heard earlier with Caleb who are in the land, in the midst of having to have and wanting to have faith to run up to those enemies and to say, my God, my God, He will win the battle. My God is ascended into heaven. My God rules from the right hand of the throne of God. My God will come back one day. My God, the Lord Jesus Christ, reigns. And He is with us. Lord, I pray that You would just draw our eyes now to You as we conclude in song. That we would worship You. And we do it with great joy. Because you are ascended to the right hand of the Father. You rule and reign. One day you're coming back. We look forward to that day, Lord. We worship you, Lord. We magnify you, Lord. Oh, Father, help us now. Turn our eyes toward the risen Savior. Let's stand and let's conclude with this song, please.